You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient with uh, another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined by my two delightful and charming partners, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And today we are very grateful to be joined by Melissa Webb, um, who is a licensed uh, social worker. And Melissa, please correct me if I get anything wrong, because I don't want to accidentally mess anything up. But um, she's the clinical director for Red Rock Psychological Help, and she's got a background in social work. She works with patients um, as well as for the Nevada Board of Examiners. She specializes in sexual addiction, sexual abuse, trauma, and anxiety. And Melissa and I met when we were at the, you know, the, the celebration for the Las Vegas 40 under 40. And so we're both sitting here talking and, um, and, of, and both of us, uh, you know, all of our podcast listeners know that in the uns- fertility docs uncensored, I'm probably the most uncensored, um, <laughs> but I would agree with that, Carrie. I would agree. Well, you put Melissa and I next to each other and it just kind of snowballed from there. And the people surrounding us were, were just kind of wide-eyed going, oh my God. Walking away from you, like, what are they talking about? What are these women doing? So Melissa, we are so grateful to have you with us and um, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's quite an introduction. <laughs> I just remembered sitting there. I mean, there were probably three, four people around us. And I just watched the eyes getting wider and wider as all of a sudden the conversation took a turn into um, to both your specialty and mine. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you say vulva, people tend to slowly turn their head. <laughs> yes, yes. Either towards you or away from you, depending on the situation. Yeah. yeah. The situation. So, all right. So well, we were, we were chit chatting prior and, um, and you were kind of telling us a little bit, a little bit about your background, a little about what you like to do. So tell us more. So I like to do my job, which, which is all things macabre. So I like to read books about sexual pathology. I like to watch murder documentaries. I like to listen to my cult shows. Um, anything that's atypical um, is really of interest to me. And so I kind of spend my work life there and my personal time there. So what's your, like, what's your default podcast what's your default tv show like what what do you go to yeah what's what's your um current uh, obsession maybe not quite the right word but like (laughs) your your obsession (laughs) of the moment when you're in your off hours i'm on a black dahlia spiral at the moment there's a great podcast called root of evil that addresses the murder of the black dahlia but also incest uh celebrity sex crime trial And then there's different perspectives from different family members. And so it's really a cyclical look at abuse and murder and cover-ups within our system. And I can't get enough of that right now. That's the... And is that because you learn from that, like just in in the job that you do, or just that's just your fascination just in general? It's... Chicken or the egg. Chicken or the egg. Yeah. I mean, what I talked about in my 40 under 40 interview was I am a granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. And so I heard a lot of really disturbing stories as a young child, which 
as an adult, I believe, probably caused secondary trauma, but it really let me hear the outskirts or atypical view of society, of humanity, of the possibility within human behavior, uh, ple- unpleasant or pleasant. And so it kind of just uh, took over my personality a little bit. And so I like it professionally and personally and just spending a lot of time reading about the brain and really how therapy over this timeline has switched and how we're do- we do things so differently now than we did historically and you know what that looks like. So when you're listening to these or reading them or watching them, can you turn off your clinical brain at all? Or are you always running on two levels? One, one is the, I'm doing this for enjoyment. And the other is, okay, well, this, fit, this fits in clinically XYZ way. Both. I, it, it's, it's enjoyable. And I'm just constantly adding to my library. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like my work. Truly. I like it. And so it, it doesn't feel like work. And oh, that's cool. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's all going in, right? So I get to file yeah. it. Makes you a better clinician, right? That's what I tell myself. <laughs> Very cool. All right. So Susan, do we have questions for today? We do. We do. We're going to do two questions real quick. So our first one is, hello, I'm 30 and have PCOS. Um, they're on their third IUI. Um, they'd like to know what type of lifestyle change we recommend for PCOS women. She's healthy weight and exercises regularly. When she was first diagnosed, her doctor told her that most PCOS women's are overweight and the first step is to lose weight. Since I'm already at a healthy weight, um, they went straight to letrozole. Um, so far, it has worked for ovulation, but would like to know what kinds of things I can do to manage PCOS and enhance my fertility long-term. Should I change my diet or add supplements? I've also heard about a supplement called myo-inositol. Can that help? Are there particular exercise programs you recommend? Appreciate any advice we can provide. Nice. So we just did an episode on on some of the supplements, including myo-inositol. So um, I think all of us are are more in favor of that one. Um, And a lot of the things that we look at, you are already doing with respect to the exercise and maintaining a a healthy weight. Now, that's not the be all end all. And that exercise really actually helps with a lot of insulin sensitivity. And so continuing that even in the face of a healthy weight is actually really helpful in making sure that the letrozole continues to work and has a little bit higher likelihood. So um, I think a lot of the things you're already doing are, you know, 90% of the battle of what we fuss at for patients. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it's important to remember that women with lean PCOS actually still um, struggle with some of the metabolic issues that we see in women who are obese in PCOS, PCOS. So even though you may be normal weight and, and that type of thing, you are at an increased risk of having abnormal cholesterol, early heart disease, increased risk of diabetes, those types of things. So um, kind of staying on top of each other uh, of those things and being proactive is excellent. So I think you're doing, you're doing great things and add some ovocetol. <laughs> and also too, not in the fertility realm, but for people who are older, even lean PCOS patients, if you have irregular cycles and don't have periods regularly, we worry more about endometrial cancer as well. Um, so that'd be the only other thing. And then one other thing I would say, not necessarily for this patient, but for other patients who are who are diagnosed with lean PCOS, just remember there's a subset of people that actually have another condition called hypothalamic amenorrhea. And sometimes people confuse the two because people that have that condition and don't have regular periods also have a lot of eggs. So just, you know, it's always good to make sure that somebody has really thought about that and really truly decided that you do have PCOS rather than that other condition. Absolutely. Nice. All right. 
One more quick question. I am a 32-year-old female diagnosed with PCOS and unexplained infertility. My husband and I started trying in December 2019, fell pregnant in January 2020 at eight weeks, diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy in the left tube and treated with methotrexate. Since then, they've tried to conceive naturally, including an HSG, they had clear tubes and did three IUIs, all unsuccessful. They decided to go to IVF while waiting um, for the next cycle. She found out she was pregnant, but at six weeks, she went to the ER with all the symptoms of another ectopic. Docs, docs couldn't find an embryo in my uterus or fallopian tubes, but they did see a swelling in the left tube. My question is, if we continue our plan to IVF, is the risk higher, lower, or the same of having another ectopic pregnancy? That's a good question. Yeah, that is a great question. And we would all agree lower risk, although not zero, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the nice thing about IVF is that we can bypass the tubes completely. And so when we're placing the embryo, we do it under ultrasound guidance so we can put it in the upper half of the uterus, but that embryo still floats around on its own. So it has the ability to go float up into that tube that's problematic and land there. Um, and, and actually we did, and this is a first in my career, but, um, we have, uh, I did a, a case with one of my partners where an embryo landed in a tubal nubbin. And so this woman had had, um, had had two, both tubes removed in prior, prior years for ectopics and the surgeons had left just a small nubbin and that's where the embryo landed. So we needed to, to clear that out. And so, um, so that can certainly happen, but, you know, like I said, that was once in, that was my first case in 10 years of doing this. And so rare things are rare, but, but it's typically the rates quoted are, you know, like less than a percent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, IVF is definitely the safer way to go. If you've had two ectopics, I would. Yeah. looks like there's a tubal issue. Even if your tubes are open, they may not be normal in the embryo. It sounds like it's getting stuck in the tubes. Absolutely. All right. So the topic that we're going to go into today and why all, all three of us are really excited to have Melissa here mm -hmm. is talking about how to help our patients, particularly those who have trauma in their backgrounds, go through the fertility process. Because so often our patients are type A, really very used to being in control of their lives. And and all of a sudden they lose that control with fertility. And that's aggravated for patients who have a prior traumatic history. And so when you're looking at vaginal ultrasounds and pelvic exams and all of that, it, it takes on a, a different meaning. So Melissa, what, what advice and, and how, how can we help our patients who have that kind of a history to go through this process, which at baseline is traumatic in and of itself? I think... What's most helpful is when you are doing a consultation or a first visit with a client, patient, is really explaining to them their rights and not on a piece of paper that is mixed in with a hundred other papers, but really saying, I'm here to he learn about your history and you as a person, and I need you to explain to me how you want to be touched, what kind of notice you want when I'm going to be touching your body, if you need to take a deep breath, if you want to disclose a sexual assault historically, let's talk about it for a second. Because I think so many women have been sexually assaulted, right? So one in four women will report sex abuse in their life. We know the number is so much higher than that because how many assaults have you gone through that you haven't said anything? How many people do you know that haven't said anything? So we really think the number is about one in two. And so really, 
if you're looking at your day on the calendar, half of those women have undergone some sort of sexual assault previously in their life, whether that's, you know, full on insertion or fondling or being exposed to either way, they have now paired in their brain genitals or sexuality with, you know, scary feelings or feeling out of control or feeling a loss of themselves. So really making yourself vulnerable to the client by saying, tell me what you need to feel safe in this room. And I'm okay with you advocating for yourself. I know you know that, but I just want to reaffirm to you, I'm okay with receiving feedback because so many people, in my opinion, so many women feel the power differential between doctor and patient, right? And they don't feel like they can say something. And so for you to bring it up as the person in power to say, hey, I'm, I'm here to receive any feedback that you have for this next hour, um, I think is very important and helpful. So on the flip side, if you're the patient, you as a patient are intimidated, you're going to the doctor's office. And I think any patient is really intimidated coming into an infertility examination because they know they're going to talk about a lot of really difficult history, even in the best circumstance. So for somebody who's really timid, who's been through some sort of trauma, how would how do they approach their doctor in that scenario when they the power differential is the way it is where they don't have, at least have as perceived as much power as their doctor has? Right. Um, hopefully at some point, these women are also working with a therapist because as you're aware, it's so emotionally draining this whole process. So hopefully that they can pre-prepare a conversation with their therapist or come in with notes or something that they want to say. You know, part of therapy is practicing asserting yourself and setting boundaries. And so hopefully they can practice and take it into the exam room. Um, but also, I think a lot of women don't even realize they're coming from or feeling like they're in a lower position of power. And so you bringing that up kind of reaffirms to them, oh, it is safe for me to say something. Um, but a lot of people do well with making simple notes, which sounds kind of robotic or, um, you know, too pre-planned. Although you did say your patients are pretty type A, so maybe they <laughs> would be comfortable bringing in a list of notations. Uh huh. Um, but I think really understanding that it's a two-way relationship and it's not, they are in the position of power. What if, what if you have a patient who specifically thinks, uh, there's just no way I'm going to be able to let this person examine me physically and they're scared to say something, how, how should they assert themselves? I think if it's possible to take those deep breaths and say, I've had a trauma recently or I had a trauma previously, I need a second, or I'm wondering if you could first touch my toe or touch my kneecap Right. So when we're getting massage, even you may notice that the masseuse never takes both hands off the table. They always leave one hand on your body while they're getting lotion. And so it helps the person laying there, the vulnerable person, understand where at least one hand is at all times. And so asking, could you keep one hand on my knee or could you first touch my leg or a different part of my body? Because going from zero touch to genital touch is a lot, even yes. for typical people. Right. And so asking, hey, I just need a second. Um, and they may feel silly and that's okay. It's okay to feel silly. I just want to reaffirm that it's okay to feel atypical. It's okay to feel like you have a need or a request because I think so many women don't feel like they can make requests. Yeah, one thing I try and do too, and I think maybe the patient could say something to the doctor, you know, I always say, particularly for a younger patient, adolescent patient who's really nervous about the exam or somebody that's had trauma, I always say, you know, I'm going to put the speculum in. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing as I'm doing it. 
But at any point, you want me to stop, you want me to take the speculum out, you just tell me and I'll do it. I, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable and you're in control. And I literally say you're in control. And I think that does help a little bit. So maybe the patient could say something like that too to their physician about, you know, let me dictate, you know, what's going on. If I want you to stop, just assure me that you're going to stop. I mean, one, one thing that I'm kind of going through my mind right now is, you know, you talking about that theoretically, this is potentially one out of every two patients. And I, I really want people who come to see us to, to be able to share, because I, I mean, we, we are, we are very empathetic doctors, but we do like, there's different levels of what we do for different people, depending on what their, their needs and their desires are. And so, you know, there's some people who want fertility treatment to be very transactional because that's how they can compartmentalize things. Whereas other people, it's much more of a touchy feely thing, you know, and, and people are usually one end or the other. And being able to share with us like where you are very much helps because we we don't know which of those people in my when people come to see me actually one of our screening questions is you know have you ever been the victim of any type of abuse you know are you do you want counseling have you ever had counseling you know different things like that and so that kind of helps us but if even if you don't feel comfortable filling that out like letting us know like kind of where you are on on that that spectrum it it helps us treat you as the individual that you want to be. Yeah, I agree. I just, I think that an important model to, to look at is the save model. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of save, but it's uh, what we teach any type of practitioner to use with their clients, which is screen all patients. So not just assuming, well, they'll tell me if they were abused. No, they're not going to tell you. You need to ask. Um, and then the, the A of save is asking direct questions in a non-judgmental manner. So open, open-minded questions, instead of saying, well, you haven't been abused, have you? Which a clinician legit asked That's me terrible. that. And I was like, I'm not, I can't believe you're asking that. Um, validate is the V, validate their experience, whatever has happened, and then evaluate. Is today the day we're going to move forward with whatever procedure? Because if they're sobbing or crying about this, maybe today's not the day to move forward with the procedure. So I really like that save model. But I have a question. So a lot of our patients come in with partners, okay? And the person I'm actually more concerned about is not the person who checked the box on my piece of paper. It's the person who's never said anything to anyone. And the likelihood of this being the moment that they're going to share with their partner that they have a history of abuse isn't, <laughs> I would say it's not exceptionally high. Like what, what, how, how, how do we do that? How do we draw that out? <laughs> Well, is it never appropriate to ask to speak to the patient alone or do you always leave their support person in the room? It's strategically difficult. I mean, it would be like having to change our entire flow, at least in my clinic. Yeah, sometimes for the exam, like when the woman goes for the exam, usually the husband will kind of look at, look at me questioning like, am I supposed to go? And I mean, I guess strategically you could leave him behind, but that's not what we usually do. Usually the husband or partner follows the patient um, to the other room. I mean, fertility is very much a team sport. And so yeah. <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times the, the couple is scared and they're scared together. Um, mm -hmm. And so he or she is clean to the, their partner. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things where forcibly separating them can also do damage in addition to 
not separating them. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe just saying, instead of asking, have you been assaulted? Just acknowledging if there's been an assault in your history or a time that you felt you lost control of of your own body autonomy, please let me know. I'm here to hear that. Like just making the statement without asking where they actually need to respond to you. They can just nod or because it's still going in whether or not they express an answer to you. They're still hearing you validate their experience. They're still hearing you say it's okay to have a problem. It's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to all these different things. Um, you know, interestingly enough, when I talk to women about sexual assault, one of the things that they, um, sexual assault and then going to the doctor at any point in their life after that, one of the things that they very often think about is how their labia appear to the doctor. And really? I, yeah, and I always respond, I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're looking for function and there are only so many parts of the body and we are all comprised of them in different ways, right? So most of us have two labia, most of us have a clitoris or a clitoral hood or whatever it is. Um, so they all look different and they're kind of put together in different ways. So they're just looking at function and health. They're not uh, grading your, the appearance of your vulva. Making a judgment of it. Right. And I even have a, a book of illustrations with all these different vulvas. And I say, pick yours out. It doesn't matter. They're all different. That That's not why people got into this career. I, I, I totally get that. I mean, people people sit there and they're like, I'm sorry, I didn't wax or I didn't shave. I didn't shave. shave. I'm, like, I didn't like, I'm like, I don't care. So far out of like what I'm paying. You know, I'm like, it, it's like if, if our patients are so worried about shaving their legs, by the way, like some people do, some people don't. It doesn't Don't matter. worry about it. Like we, we take care of every color, variety, shape, size, you got Doesn't it. Matter. You don't got it. We we're, we're going to get We don't to care. <laughs> and if you ask us 30 minutes later, we probably couldn't even remember what we looked at, you know? <laughs> yeah. We we remember pathology. Do we need to do something versus none? And the vast majority are going to be just fine. Right. And if there is something different about it, you're right. It's all right. Is this functionally going to interfere with what we're doing? Is this causing right. a problem? And how do I help that? And that's, that's really where it ends. And some of, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but when, when my nurses are also my patients or my staff members or friends or, or people who I know outside of the context of just a patient, they're always weird, like worried about, Oh, you know, I didn't shave. I didn't wax. I didn't have a time to shower 10 minutes before the appointment. And I'm like, I, I don't care. I mean, it, it can be really not even 30 minutes, five minutes later. I have no recollection of what I just saw unless medically I need to have a recollection of that because it's relevant. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very true. I think the women are so used to having their genitals objectified that they are very concerned with how it reflects on them rather than just being a part of their body like their elbow or foot. Mm -hmm. They have given it so much power or the power has been taken from them that they're so hyper-focused on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just show up as you are, come as you are, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes patients really appreciate having a, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this now. And, and a lot of times I will ask patients, particularly those who have told me they're nervous, like, okay, do you want me to tell you everything I'm going to do as I'm doing it? Or just get it done. (laughs) Or just do it and talk to you about something completely different or not say anything at all. And, and really all of those things are fine. Cause like we said, I don't care. I just want to make sure 
that you can get through this so that we can get the information we need so we can move to whatever the next step of, of helping you is. But it's, I think all of us try and ask as much as we can, particularly when we can see that there's a problem. Um, and, and now even more so when we can't, but, um, but everybody's going to have a slightly different response and that's fine. Yeah. When, when you do screenings, assumably it's pen and paper right before they came in and come into the room, right? Um, one of the things that a lot of young women, and I don't know how much that would affect your guys' practice, but a lot of young women, they don't check that they've been assaulted because one of the questions is, have you been raped? And raped has a definition that people have assigned to it. It doesn't mean they've been assaulted, right? Or if someone has, you know, fondled their genitals or someone has exposed their genitals to them, but there was no actual touching. A lot of people don't understand the question that you're asking. They don't, they think you're asking if literally a penis has gone inside their vagina angrily, like that's how they've decided rape means. And so I think it's also important that it's, have you had any type of unwanted sexual touch is, or sexual behavior against you or something like that, because it gives them more space to think critically or abstractly rather than so um, penis to vagina. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that will give you more information about the client as well. Are there any other things that we can do um, for our patients who, who have more just high levels of anxiety and where control really is a big issue, not necessarily who've been through that type of assault in the past, but, um, but when they're going through and they, you know, they can't necessarily control when their next period comes and when we're going to start, we can, we can control if we start or if we don't, we can't always control the when we can't always control the how. And so are there any, any suggestions you have for patients who are going through this where they, um, they really don't have that kind of control. Cause I have, I have a lot of patients say, well, I can't do this unless we do it on X day. And, and I always explain, you know, I, I will do my best, but it's your body that's deciding. And we only have so much control over that. Yeah. That's a hard one. Um, that's, you know, anxiety serves different functions for different people. And so it's really important that the anxious person knows what the function is. So is being anxious, helping me feel like I'm in control is being anxious, helping me not think about the other things in my life that are really problematic is being anxious, keeping me from having happy feelings in my relationship. Like what is the function that it's serving and kind of working backwards from that. Um, So it's so hard to answer that because it's depending on why they're being anxious. I typically would say to come in with, they should be coming in with their coping skills that they've discovered historically have worked for them. So is that music? Is that journaling? Is that carrying around a rock or an amulet? Is it a mantra that you've worked out in your brain that you repeat when you're anxious or nervous? Um, And none of that's on you guys as practitioners, right? That's on the client to be prepared be prepared to go into a setting that may disrupt their feelings of calm. Um, And I think a lot of people get frustrated with coping skills because they're like, well, I tried singing and that didn't work. Well, yeah, it's like a hobby. You have to try maybe 15 different coping skills till you find the one that really works for you. For me, I've discovered it's really deep breathing, but in a very specific way, breathing in for three seconds, holding for three seconds and out for three seconds and in visualizing a circle pattern. Um, I don't know why that works for me. It just does. My body and brain respond to that. And so just keep trying those coping skills, trying to find the, what works for you. Is there any way that we can um, kind of kindly approach 
when we see someone who is just extraordinarily anxious or extraordinarily nervous about whatever process, whether it's the physical, the emotional, the mental, um, is there, is there any good way that we can approach people and say, Hey, you may, you may really benefit by a therapist as you're going through this. And, and I don't know about you guys, but it's, it's always easier for me when I have someone who's constantly breaking down in front of me, like, okay, that this gives me an opening yeah. and I can say, yeah. Hey, I've got Start this great to pick therapist. That right time. I mean, because we know studies show us that almost all of our patients have a psychological diagnosis at the time that they're coming to see us, whether it's depression, anxiety, you know, pick pick, pick your poison per se. Um, and, and so trying to figure out when's the right time to say, hey, maybe we should get some additional help. I find that. Um, people don't want to feel picked at or picked on. They know they have anxiety. They know how they have depression, right? So instead of saying, you look like you're having a hard day, here's the card for the people we partner with. It sometimes is easier to say, this, this process is difficult for so many of our clients that we habitually hook people up with mental health professionals that deal with this comorbidity of depression, anxiety with you know whatever their diagnosis is. We refer most people here. There's no pressure. Feel free to give them a call. It's important that agencies partner with a therapeutic agency that specializes in this and not just sending them to who's ever on their insurance panel because it really is a specialty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And saying no pressure either way, a lot of people find it helpful and then they can absorb it without thinking something's wrong with me. I'm bad physically, I'm bad emotionally, I'm a bad wife, partner, whatever. It's just lots of women have this, here's a card. Um, And just kind of making it normative rather than a special referral, right? Because they're tired of referrals. They've had special referrals a very long time, right? They just want to hear, hey, might benefit you, no pressure. Um, And I think people know when it's time, when they're really feeling burnt out with this process. And, um, you know, it's, we were talking about partners before, and I was thinking about, about the statistic that we recently just looked into, which was 47% of women have had at least one partner historically be the perpetrator, whether that was a teen, whether that was an adult partner or having a time, having sex a time as a married person that you didn't want to, like some version of being perpetrated on. Um, And so it's, I think just to acknowledge that for everyone listening, that it's okay to have mixed feelings about your current partner based on your history. Um, You don't have to, everything doesn't have to be rosy at once. It's okay to have mixed feelings at different times in our life. Um, You don't need to decide everything at one time because this is a lot of decision-making at once, right? And so sometimes when we're here at the doctor with our new partner, we may have thoughts or memories of our old partner that was unkind to us. Um, and that's okay too. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think so much of this process brings up not only the current trauma, but all of the previous trauma as well, whether it's sexual or whether it is um, at the hands of other loved ones or you know, parents were in a more authoritarian role, things that you assign your doctor is, you know, oh, well, you're just like mom or you're just like dad or, or whatnot. And that it brings it up on, it brings up old trauma very commonly out of the blue when people really aren't necessarily expecting that particular thing to come up and hit them in the back of the head. Exactly. 
Exactly. I think a lot of women, especially type A, want to have answers for things. We want to know the whys. Why is this coming up? Why? And sometimes there is no why. Sometimes your brain is just populating it because it's tied together. Um, and we do use EMDR with a lot of these types of patients. Um, What's EMDR? It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Uh, it's a therapeutic technique that sounds ridiculous, but the studies are fantastic. Basically, you're doing therapy while watching uh, my fingers move left to right, and you're going through the rapid eye movement sequence that goes through, that happens when we're sleeping. Basically, trauma is stored in the wrong part of our brain. With the eye movement, we're reorganizing where it's stored. And so you will always remember the trauma, but you will not get the fight or flight response because we're thinking of it like a recipe card rather than I'm in the moment right now, all of my centers are firing. Um, It's a way to take the excitement down basically. And so we do EMDR with this population a lot um, to get people back into their bodies. So they do eye movement while they're talking to you? Interesting. Yeah. So um, a big thing. It started with vets. And so a lot of vets can't talk about the, the things that they've saw or witnessed in the military. And so it, we figured out among lots and lots of research and studies that moving the eyes while recalling traumatic events, you actually don't need to say the words out loud. So we can do this with little kiddos who don't have a great verbal, uh-huh. verbal expression. We can do this with people who are have selective mutism after an offense. So there's the eye movement or you do bilateral stimulation holding buzzers or self-tapping on the shoulders because we're doing bilateral stimulation of the brain. Long story short is it helps people get back in their body And so one of the big questions is, where do you feel that memory in your body? And so some people will say in my stomach, in my heart, in my throat, in my chest, whatever it is. And then we do the processing through it. And so women in in this arena very often benefit from it. Huh. Interesting. How does someone find a professional who knows how to do the EMDR? And and is that something that you can do by telemedicine? Because a lot of our listeners are out in areas where they don't necessarily have great access to, you know, a big healthcare community. So is this something that you could, you could make happen over telemedicine? Yeah. So we, I mean, you can do it right now while we're treading online. (laughs) You can track left to right, but you can also do the tapping and the client self tap, or we will mail them the buzzer system. EMDR is possible and very, doable on telemedicine. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. Find a good practitioner. That's a different question. Um, it's, it's like any other relationship. You're not, you don't necessarily bond with the first practitioner you find. It is okay. And it is, we, we encourage women to try one, two, three, four therapists. It's like friends. You're not friends with everyone you meet. It's okay to have consultations and find someone that you click with that understands you, or you feel like is open-minded. That's okay. Um, Psychology Today, you can Google it. You can go onto the Amidria website and look up a practitioner in your area. But it's really, again, it's really important that people are connected in the community. So you guys find in your community people who specialize in in this arena. That way you can do safe referrals, um, you know, to one, two, three, four different providers in town that might work with this population. Neat. 
Very cool. That's really good advice. Thank you so much, Melissa. We are very appreciative. I am so glad that that we came across each other at the 40 under 40 so that we could connect uh, connect on this and, and help a, a group of patients that really don't always get the care and attention and, and the discussion that is merited given, given their history. So we are very grateful. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being willing to have a conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Really Very important. Any, anything we can do to help our patients is, is the goal. And sometimes those are very uncomfortable conversations to get there. So yeah. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next time for more. Um, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by and leave, leave us a like or a follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. Or leave us an episode idea, but don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.